Before we jump into our message for today, I want to first take a moment to recognize two significant days, and I'll do my best to make sure I speak in a way that doesn't unnecessarily trigger you. Are you nervous yet? I don't know when you're watching this or listening on the podcast, but Sunday, January 17th, the third Sunday of January, is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And it's a day set aside to give awareness to the pregnancy and abortion crisis our country has been facing for some time. Also, Monday, January 18th, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. I've been searching for what to say as a pastor today on the issue of abortion and human life. I know even just mentioning it causes lots of feelings to immediately rise up in people because of how politicized um, this issue has become. And it's an important one, and it's often a personal one. I found a statement by the AND campaign that I thought was beautiful. And as I thought about it, I thought it would be impossible for me to improve on this. I I shared it with my bishop, and he said, yeah, that says it all. And so what I'd like to do is read that short statement, um, which I think is the Christian's statement, to you and offer it as a helpful way to think, pray, and ultimately engage with this issue from a Christian perspective and as a follower of Jesus. The end campaign says, we think of human dignity when we think about the sacredness of human life. The culture wars have raged over the issue of abortion for the past 40 years with results that have been at turns life-affirming and toxic. We have no interest in the politicization of abortion for partisan gain. Popular rhetoric that needlessly inflames and offends is unhelpful, as is rhetoric that rationalizes away our responsibility to act. We find that scripture, biology, and the demands of human dignity require a societal response to the tragedy of abortion. Towards that end, We believe that abortion must be opposed holistically from the economic patterns that often drive the practice to the societal values that justify it. We must provide more support for women with crisis pregnancies. Again, as a follower of Jesus, I don't know how to even improve on that, but I want to offer that to you, regardless of how you feel on the issue, as a helpful way to begin to think and pray and know how to engage with this issue as a follower of Jesus. Often, our world doesn't know how to do this. And as a church, I believe God's called us um, not to echo the world, but to offer an alternative to it. Additionally, a friend of mine uh, speaking on this politically divisive time, this violent world that we live in, uh, he sent me some thoughts that um, he heard early in November, and as I read them in January, they are um, still so true. And he quotes Dr. King, and so I'd like to, um, in a way of, uh, of recognizing and honoring uh, MLK Day tomorrow, or you know Monday, um, I'd like to offer this because it is just so good. My, my friend says, I contend that the best way forward in our political divisions comes from Martin Luther King Jr. 
No one I read seems godlier or makes more intuitive sense. No one better combines devout motives. His vision was rooted in agape love. With righteous means of nonviolent direct action. I resonate with MLK's words, quote, In a world depending on force, coercive tyranny, and bloody violence, we are challenged to follow the way of love. Nonviolent resistance combines tough-mindedness with tender-heartedness. It is tough-minded enough to resist evil. It is tender-hearted enough to resist it with love. It avoids the complacency and the do-nothingism of the soft-minded and the violence and bitterness of the hard-hearted. Well said. I want to take a moment and pray for you <laughs> and me and our church in light of these things. Heavenly Father, we first want to acknowledge that you care about these things way more than we do. And we confess we often approach them with imperfect, human, and at times sinful bias. We reject the ways of the flesh. We reject the ways of this world and the system of the world. And we reject the way of hell. We reject the way of the devil. And we give ourselves to you, our King. We consecrate ourselves to you towards the kingdom of heaven. And we welcome the kingdom of heaven over not just our church, but our families and our homes and our lives. And I specifically pray, God, you would give us the intestinal fortitude, the courage, and the tender-hearted love that only comes by your Holy Spirit to rise far above American politics, And that you would help us to understand that we are first citizens of your heavenly kingdom. A kingdom for all people, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that if we're Americans, that is a distant second. And so, Lord... Give us the ability, functionally, to be agents and ambassadors and witnesses and representatives of the kingdom of God. Help us to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. We say, let there be light. Help us to be the light of the world as you have envisioned. In all matters of justice and equality, for all lives, that include black lives, that include Asian lives and Mexican lives and 
European lives and white lives and the lives of the refugee and also the life of the unborn and the life of the woman carrying that baby. Lord, would you give us a vision of what you desire your people to be? We offer all of these things to you and the feelings that come with them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. If you are familiar with the seasons or calendar of the church, you might know that today is the second Sunday of the season of Epiphany. Epiphany isn't a word we use every day, so for some, this is a little different, and I hope you can catch on. But of the various focuses that come through the season of Epiphany, the one that resonates deeply with me is the idea of taking some extended time to just sit with and focus on the person of Jesus that we've all been longing for and preparing for all of Advent. And so with that in mind, we intend to focus our time, um, this epiphany on Jesus, the light of the world. I love reading the scriptures. I believe it is best practice to read them every day, especially in the hour in which we live. I love the Psalms and the Proverbs. I get a lot out of the practical takeaways from the epistles or the letters to specific churches but my heart just comes alive when I slowly and deeply consider Jesus in the Gospels. It's easy to study his words, and it's natural to be amazed and marvel at his works. But sometimes that's where we stop. We read his words and we read about his works, but there's also something to studying his way, the way he carries himself and the way he interacts with people. I've always been and continue to be intrigued and convicted by the way that Jesus carries himself. And that's what I'd like to highlight for you this season of Epiphany. One of my favorite old books is called The Great Physician by G. Campbell Morgan. It's inspired this study and series of messages. Each chapter in this book is basically an encounter that Jesus had with individuals. And one of the takeaways I had when reading this many years ago is that Jesus never treats anyone the same. He meets people exactly where they are, in their reality, in their pain. And he ministers health and wholeness to them exactly how they need it. There's no formula. Uh, for example, one time he heals by spitting in the mud, and another time he tells the lepers to simply go to the temple and present themselves, and he heals them on the way. There's no formula. And I love that picture of Jesus. Yes, he's the light of the world. Yes, he's the bread of life, the prince of peace. He's the good shepherd. He's also the great physician. And the timing for some teaching like this seems right. We need a great physician, don't we? Our world is sick. Our world is literally <laughs> sick and metaphorically sick. Of many things, we are sick with the disease of hatred, the disease of division, the disease of deception and falsehood, the disease of idolatry and even national idolatry. Last Tuesday, a day before this little thing that happened at the Capitol, I made the mistake of turning on the news and I couldn't watch more than 30 minutes. It was so depressing and discouraging I could feel it in my soul and in my body, and I know that you probably feel the same way. 
Everything from COVID numbers to hospitals in California to the slow vaccine rollout to the mess of politics, the crazy games politicians play, the heartbreaking injustice in Kenosha. And that was just last Tuesday before this little thing at the Capitol. Today's lesson is coming from Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. And I want to be upfront with you. There's no strategy in choosing this. Um, I've chosen it simply because it is one of my favorite accounts of Jesus. And in these days, I need Jesus to bring me delight and joy. And this encounter that the great physician has with two people brings me that delight and joy that my soul needs. I hope that today, no matter where you are or how you are, you can see Jesus our great physician, in a way that not only speaks to you, but also brings hope and joy to you, despite the physical, social, emotional, or spiritual sickness you might be suffering from right now. So if you'd like to turn to Luke uh, 7, turn there with me. Verse 36 is where we will start today. Uh, I'll do something a little different. I'm just going to read and stop, comment, read and comment, read and comment. And we're just going to kind of walk our way through the text. And I will um, suggest to you that you ask the question, Lord, what are you saying to me as we do this? So let's start in verse 36. When the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, it's not a stretch to see that the Pharisees are at best antagonistic to Jesus and at worst, and more truthfully, enemies of Jesus. They are literally the ones who had him innocently executed by the government. And so don't miss this. A, a Pharisee extended an invitation to Jesus to eat, and he went. And he didn't just go. He went in, and he reclined. He sat at the table. And picture that in your mind as best as you can. Jesus in a hostile t environment, in, in hostile territory, on the Pharisee's turf, reclining. He's not freaking out. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of the great physician. Uh, he has such assurance and inner freedom and inner strength that he can recline that table with someone who will eventually plot to kill him. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And so uh, apparently this was such a big deal that Jesus did this word got out and started trending on the original social network, word of mouth. And something compelled this like woman of the city to go and be with Jesus in a hostile environment. Let's read that again. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, I'm a dude, but I have three older sisters, and if they taught me anything, it is that you do not mess with a woman's hair. Don't touch it. 
Don't make a negative comment on it, especially after a haircut. See the picture that has been painted here. A woman who apparently has a reputation around the city has invited herself to where Jesus is in enemy territory, and she's behind Jesus with a gift, emotionally undone, weeping, washing his feet, not with water, but with her tears, and further, drying his feet with her hair, kissing his feet, and performing a sacred act of anointing him with oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and if you write in your Bible, you could underline or put a circle around the word saw, that he saw this. He said to himself, now remember, Simon the Pharisee doesn't say this out loud. He says this to himself. He says, after seeing this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Now, before we move on, you must get exactly what Simon is saying to himself. He is discrediting Jesus and everything Jesus claims he is because Simon doesn't think that Jesus is a prophet. Now, what is a prophet? When you think of a prophet, you may think of someone who angrily shouts out and confronts people. Not wrong, but on the most basic level, a prophet is a seer. They see things as they are, and they see where things lead. And so, specifically in Old Testament thinking, prophets are those who see clearly. When Simon says, if this man were a prophet, he is saying, if this man were a seer, Simon thinks he sees, and he thinks Jesus doesn't see. So I want you to hold that in your mind because in a bit, Jesus is going to directly address this assumption in a way that honestly makes me giggle, and it might make you giggle too. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He doesn't call him a prophet, calls him teacher. Jesus says, a certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them would love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, here's where it gets good and get ready to giggle. Then, turning toward the woman... He said to Simon, and this is verse 44 here, is the, the, I think the most important verse here. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. So, so get this. Jesus is um, physically turns towards the woman and faces the woman of the city and is casting his eyes upon her while talking to Simon still. So he's still talking to Simon, but he's now shifted his physical gaze to the woman. And he's not just speaking to Simon with his words. He's speaking to Simon with his body language, which I absolutely love. There's so much irony here. It's so good. And here's what he says to Simon while looking at the woman. Remember, Simon says, if he were a seer, right? Do you see her? Do you see this woman? 
Now, remember what Simon said to himself. If this man were a prophet, if this man were a seer, and Jesus knows. And so he turns to face the woman as a way of telling Simon that he does see her. And then comes the like left hook that makes me giggle. He says, Simon, do you see her? And he goes on to say, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus reads the mind of Simon, stands up for the sinful woman, receives her gift of worship and sacrifice, forgives her, and shows the religious proud what forgiveness and grace is all about. It's one of my favorite stories of Jesus. Usually when this passage is taught, we turn to focus on, uh, on the message of forgiveness because that's how it closes. And that's not wrong. Jesus is here to forgive. But it seems to me that today, the word of grace that God has for us is that Jesus sees you. Simon doesn't think that Jesus sees her or him for that matter. But the great physician saw them both. We tend to be hard on the self-righteous religious idiot people like Simon, of which none of us are exempt from being. But isn't Jesus there reclining in enemy territory, not just to forgive the woman, but to win Simon's heart too? It's easy to have grace for the obvious sinner and the person who is in obvious sinner pain. It is much harder to have grace for the self-righteous or the deceived. But don't they need healing too? Doesn't Simon need forgiveness too? Doesn't the Pharisee need a physician too? Isn't that why Jesus is there? Now, here's how I would declare the gospel news to you today. It doesn't matter where you are, and it doesn't matter how you are. You can be brokenhearted and weeping like the woman. You can also be blind and self-righteous and angry and judgmental and cynical like the Pharisee. But here's the good news. Jesus sees you. The great physician sees you. And he sees what is ailing your heart. And more than that, he is present. He's close enough to kiss. He's so close that your tears can land on him. Sometimes people forget what the gospel is. One great danger in our day is that we've reduced the gospel down to God wants to get you into heaven after you die. But I'd like to read the gospel in Jesus' own words in Luke Chapter 4, verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon the great physician. If you're poor, physically or spiritually, there's good news. If you're captive and enslaved, physically or spiritually, there's good news. If you're blind, physically or spiritually, there's good news. And if you're oppressed, physically or spiritually, there's good news. Run to Jesus. Run to his feet. Invite him into your house. Recline with him because the great physician sees you. Lord, I know that whoever is watching or in the sound of my voice, without question, is suffering great pain in at least one domain of their life. Lord, if they are in the position of the woman, I pray you would give them the courage to run to you wherever you are and to just be so comfortable in your presence that they will allow themselves to be undone at your feet. And I pray you administer your love and your health to them. Lord, if someone's watching or listening that is in more of the state of Simon who is not aware of just how broken they are and is perhaps judgmental or self-righteous or condemning of others. I pray, God, that in a way only you can, that you would soften the hard-hearted. You're really good at doing that. We welcome you, Jesus, the great physician, to come into our lives, our bodies, our hearts, our will, our agenda, our soul, our spirit, our emotions, our relationships, our conversations, our worldviews, even our politics. We welcome you, Jesus, to come and to not only turn any tables that we have set up that get in your way, but to tenderly, with your scalpel, remove from us the spiritual cancer of sin, that is killing us. We turn to you, Jesus. We look to you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.